you told me in advance that this whole submission process and dealing with the FDA and the orthopedic space is still a little bit like the Wild West. Why is that? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, Hogan Lovell's Life Sciences and Healthcare Podcast. As always, I have two really, really special guests today. So first of all, we have Michael Kasser and Jermaine Dedania. Thank you for joining me today. And before we kick it off talking about orthopedics, could you give a quick introduction of yourself? I'll go first. So, so this is Michael Moshe Kasser. So I have a PhD in material science and engineering from the University of Maryland. My thesis focused on a novel way to improve ultra-high molecular polyethylene. That is a, uh, the material, a plastic that is used to replace the cartilage when you replace a total joint, you replace the bone with metal, you replace the cartilage with this plastic. And when I finished my PhD, I went to work at the FDA, actually in the orthopedics department. Um, so I got to put my PhD straight to use, which was very nice. And I was instrumental, I think, with the initial regulation of vitamin E polyethylene when that was being introduced to the market across the board. Biomed already had it, but when the other orthopedic manufacturers were adopting it, uh, I also uh, was working with MR safety of implanted devices, which was a developing field at the time, still developing, to be honest. After about four years at FDA, I moved to Israel and I joined Hogan Lovells. I've been their man on the ground here in Israel. Israel has a lot of medical device innovation happening in it. Uh, Hogan Lovells has a very long history of assisting Israeli companies. The first PMA to come out of Israel was actually with the assistance of uh, Hogan Lovells. Uh, and I joined the team as a remote employee, uh, and I've been assisting largely Israeli companies uh, with a much wider spectrum, I'd say, than just orthopedics at this point in time. But uh, I've been helping really with pre-market issues for typically startups, because that's, that's the typical company here in Israel, and helping them get to market. I'll go next. Jem Nadanya, my background is similar to Motion in the sense I'm an engineer by trade as well. So undergrad and graduate degrees in biomedical engineering with focus on uh, novel combination products in um, grad school. From there, I uh, went to the FDA as well. I mean, uh, oddly, Moshe and I started on the same day together. So fun fact there. And so stayed at FDA for eight years as a team lead. We, while Moshe and I were both in the orthopedics group, my area was much more in the combination products, bone void fillers, really anything that wasn't spine or joint replacement, metal or plastic. And um, from there, I went to Stryker for four years, m more so in the trauma and extremities group as a manager, and then recently joined Hogan Levels about nine months ago. Thank you very much for joining. So I have two heavy experts on my hands. I have not yet had much contact with the field of orthopedics. And, and you give already a quick introduction of yourself, but I'm always keen to learn why you decided to get into this field. So I think my PhD expertise is actually what ended me in ortho, and I've been doing that ever since. So though, again, in Hogan, it's, it's not just ortho. I definitely, I'd say maybe half of my work, probably less actually, maybe 30 to 40 percent of my work is in the orthopedic space, but probably, I guess it's because of my PhD. Yeah, and for me, it's similar to, I think for the past 14 years, I've been really working in the orthopedic space. And what really got me there in, in uh, undergrad and grad school, you kind of have a choice of what, what therapeutic area do you go into? And I think what's really interested in me in, with orthopedics is just really 
the hardware, right? That really got me into it. And then just kind of seeing where the technology has evolved to. But similar to Moshe, being at Hogan Lovells now, definitely working in different areas on top of orthopedics. Before our conversation, before I even more likely reach out to you and ask if you would be willing to talk to me, I read a little bit beforehand. And it appears to me that the concept to market development of orthopedics um, devices occurs across the total product life cycle, including device design, preclinical testing, clinical investigations to support marketing application and monitoring of device performance after market introduction. This process involves industry, regulatory agency, healthcare providers, engineers, scientists, lawyers, and patients. But in this particular so I just named them randomly, so there was no order. So where got you guys involved? And I'm pretty sure right from the start, more likely, but could you give me a quick rundown where you start working on projects when clients reach out to us? We often get involved at the earliest of stages after a company has an idea really even just the first stage of funding, first round of funding, angel funding. Uh, they have a little bit of a proof of concept maybe on the bench, their next step, of course, is to get the next round of funding. And to get that round of funding, uh, they need to be able to present what their expected path to market is from a regulatory perspective, assuming that their uh, medical device is going to be actively regulated. So we assist already at that stage where we lay forward, you know, this is what we think you're going to be. You're going to be a 510K or a de novo or a PMA, and this is why. And these are the tests we think that FDA is going to require. So that allows the company to put together a more informed business plan, which then can be presented to investors to get that next round of funding. And then you use that round of funding to actually go and run those studies. Um, you also often, if you're a novel product, discuss that device with FDA via the pre-submission process to make sure that, uh, you know, I joke like, you know, we have a, a good crystal ball, but there's no perfect crystal ball with FDA. The only way to really know what FDA wants is to ask them, is this what you want? And then they'll tell you what they don't like about it. So we're good at getting you pretty close, but you never know exactly how things are going to go. So we certainly assist with all stages of that process. We give technical consulting for the design of those studies. Uh, if we have the technical expertise for the actual bench testing or clinical testing. And then we assist with the marketing application that would allow you to start actually selling the device. If you need to do an investigational trial, we assist with the request to run that investigational trial and IDE. And that's really kind of the extent that I go to. I'm a pre-market person. I don't really deal with post-market issues once they're on the market with the issues coming on. And to add a little bit more what she was saying, yeah, so between Motion and I, we've probably seen a lot of everything in orthopedics from bench testing to submission types to animal testing. So we're definitely kind of keen on that. We can come in and help in most of those spots and really just kind of the strategy of, you know, looking at these test reports, analyzing what data is coming out of it and really helping the clients really get through those next phases to write a submission, to get, to get it to FDA and a little bit on the post-market side too. You know, I've spent time in industry, so definitely can help out with inspections, change notifications, add promo, right? So, so really, we can kind of just cover the whole gamut of the total product lifecycle with these products. But I assume with your background on the FDA, you already are able to prep the clients when it comes down to this whole submission process pretty properly, right? Yeah, I think we were good at setting their expectations, right? A lot of times, because since we deal with clients big and small, many folks haven't gone in front of the agency before. So I think where we come in is really kind of level set with them on this is this is what 
it's going to be required. This is um, helping them find precedence if it's a 510K, um, showing them kind of publicly available information on what other companies may have done, and then really just having a library of information here too at our hands. I think we also play a significant role in how to present your results. You know, many companies do the test. We got our results. Okay, we did what we're supposed to. We're good to go. But that's usually not the bar that you're looking for necessarily. You have to explain and justify to FDA why those results are good. And I think that's probably where we have the greatest value added, particularly with our technical expertise. We know what kind of arguments work because we were reviewing those arguments and telling you which ones didn't didn't work. Uh, and it's, it's easy to spot the holes. So very often it reduces the, you know, we put more work in the front end to have less, less issues with FDA on the back end. But you still told me in advance that this whole submission process and dealing with the FDA and the orthopedic space is still a little bit like the Wild West. Why is that? When I started at FDA, my branch actually had a new branch chief, uh, Joni Foy, uh, and she came over from cardiovascular. And she was kind of shocked at some of the longstanding policies uh, in orthopedic where we would accept at that stage promissory uh, sterilization validation. You didn't need to do pyrogenicity testing. There were a bunch of tests that just weren't heavily focused on in ortho, at least when I, when I first started there. And I think that makes sense. You know, cardiovascular, if those devices don't work, you're often dead, right? Orthopedics, if that device doesn't work, you're going to be in pain. <laughs> Uh, you're not going to work so well. It, the risk profile for these devices are inherently different. And I think that did allow different amounts of scrutiny for, for some things. And that's sort of what I meant when I said it was the Wild West in the sense of it was less by the book. I think that gap has um, narrowed over time. Certainly for biocompatibility, that is narrowed. Uh, sterility as well. You can't give FDA promissory anything. So it's less so, I would say now, but there's still ways, I think, that ortho specifically finds ways to kind of round some of the corners that don't really affect public health. I mean, one of the things that I think is great about FDA is the typical employee, I think, very well understands the mission statement of FDA, why you're there. You're there to protect public health. And that means not letting bad devices on, but it also means letting good devices through. And so where possible, uh, I do think reviewers look for reasonable corners to round that, that isn't going to affect public health. So there is a large focus on biocompatibility now, but ortho, for example, has a policy that if you're anodizing metal parts with well-established methods, then you don't need to do biocompatibility assessment of those parts, right? We have so much experience with that and they'll still leverage that, which I think is unique to ortho. I don't think I've seen another division do anything quite like that. So it's still a little bit of a you know, rule breaker, I guess, um, or, but, but it's always done in, with, with the Hebrew term for it would be seichel, with like intelligence and, and thinking through, does this really, you know, is this, is this better for, for the, the, the patient at the end of the day? And while the industry is really com competitive, it's such a competitive landscape, it's actually very collaborative as well, because when I was active at ASTM or even Osmo, so with ASTM and ISO, you have competitive companies coming together to kind of create standards together with FDA. There's FDA members there. So in that sense, it's very collaborative. And the same goes for Osma. Osma is kind of a the regulatory piece of collaboration 
So it's kind of interesting to see everyone kind of coming together because they do want to kind of set rules, regulations, and then kind of come up with standards and, and such to help kind of move products along. And really where it's needed, like Mosho was saying, it's kind of the novel areas, right? We understand a lot of orthopedics very well with the traditional materials, but everyone's kind of going out there for the new materials. And so that's where it kind of gets tricky. I assume you have now seen all three sites, FDA, Stryker, Hogan. So you can dabble around the experience you had over the years now. Yeah. And, and what we see is, you know, like, like Mosho saying, everyone's mission is the same, right? Everyone wants to get great products to people to help them but it's just the, the way that everyone's doing it and the strategy. To stay a little bit in this Wild West free roaming space, and it may sound weird, but orthopedics are always kind of compared to an immediate relief, well-being feeling. You teased it a little bit, but I was like, this whole clinical trial process, how is it measured if this device is a success? For example, put this on, are you feeling good? Yes? No? Okay, then it seems to work. How is the clinical trial process work in that field? So the endpoints for an orthopedic clinical trial will almost always include pain and function. Function is obviously device-specific, but a usually you're getting an orthopedic procedure because something is hurting. So has it helped with that? And also, can you do the daily tasks that you want to be doing? Depending what joint it is will very much depend which is the right assessment method. Sometimes there's also neurologic and obviously lack of serious adverse events. Those are the typical endpoints. And the length of the trial, you know, the you I do see, you know, I think I think I hear I hear the term, you know, stated a lot. The most successful surgery that's widely done is a total hip replacement. Right. That is a life changing surgery that that is has a h extremely high success rate. Um, the results are not immediate, of course. You do the, the the surgery itself is fairly traumatic, then there's there's the rehab, but relatively quickly you're a, a totally different person. However, FDA does also want to see long-term performance. They do that in a couple of ways. Most of FDA's teeth exist only on the pre-market side, so they try to get as much pre-market data. If it's a fracture fixation device, they want to see until the bone is completely healed. If it's a total joint replacement, they want to see at least two years for the shortest patient, which will usually give them four to five-year data. And then if it's a novel device, they'll also have post-market surveillance, more active you know, post-market surveillance for something like that. Yeah. And, and what we see is, you know, like, like most of think, everyone's mission is the same, right? Everyone wants to get great products to people to help them, but it's just the, the way that everyone's doing it and the strategy. Good that I had you on. Now I'm still learning about this stuff. I can emphasize that I'm not as familiar with your field. You see a lot of wild stuff on kind of LinkedIn and social media when companies are reporting on new developments, especially all in the um, orthopedics field. So new technologies are also making massive inroads in this area. What about biocompatibility and ortho-specific hacks? Something you have on your desk often? This is well, certainly an issue that we're seeing a lot with FDA. I think most, you know, any device that's con patients that, that contacts the patient requires a biocompatibility assessment. FDA very strictly adheres to the related ISO standard, ISO 10993, and they have at this point in time a very narrow interpretation in the sense of what requires new testing. 
the FDA published new guidance about this, not new anymore, but they published guidance, what, in 2015, 16, where they, where they state that the assessment needs to not just include the materials that the device is made out of, but also any manufacturing agent that is used throughout the manufacturing process. So things like cutting fluids, cleaning agents, um, mold release agents, anything like that that could remain on the device and affect its biocompatibility. And what that has resulted in is a level of biocompatibility risk assessment that it often results in testing. Unless you're not just using the same materials, but you're manufacturing it the exact same way as a previous device, FDA is going to say, well, that's going to be treated as a completely new material and you have to address all the biocompatibility endpoints for an implant material, which is a substantial amount of testing. We're talking several hundred thousand dollars worth of testing. These are and the time, right? Right, and yeah. time, right? Uh, some of these tests, right, the implantation test is at least 13 weeks. Subchronic, chronic testing, those take long times. So it's, it's a lot of cost in terms of time and resource. And also, it's a lot of cost on animals, to be blunt. And, you know, there, I'm not so sure that it's doing that great a job predicting public health. I think it's, it, it's, it's creating a lot of challenges and it's a very much binary decision by FDA. Either it's identical and you don't have to do any testing or it's new and you have to do all the testing. What I have rarely seen be accepted is it's mostly the same. So therefore just do a small subset, the most sensitive tests. I have not seen those type of arguments see much success. Would that mean that the motivation for uh, manufacturers or developers to kind of hold back onto it based on the fact that they have to invest so much more into it? They do have to, but I think the consistency, where there is some consistency between the EU, the MDR, and FDA is the biocompatibility because the, the, the MDR is also requiring the same level of evidence. And I think while it has been burdensome on manufacturers, I just think it's a new requirement moving forward that's going to require planning and kind of strategizing ahead of time. And so I think if you talk to a lot of the, the test labs, they're very backed up right now because they're just so busy with this, right? So this once again goes back to planning these tests and incorporating them into your kind of schedule and timeline. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no other game in town, right? If you want to sell in the U.S., you got it through the FDA. You want to sell in Europe, you got to go through the MDR process. And there is still the um, issues around the notified bodies over here. So um, I think that's an additional hurdle, right? Yeah. I mean, talking to our European experts at this point in time, if it's a 510k device, it's certainly faster and easier to go through FDA than it is to go through EU. Even a de novo, I would say, is easier. Only a PMA, would I say, maybe would take longer with FDA, which is a change, change from what, how it used to be. Of course, our listeners are always interested in your insights and with your significant background, I think that is super interesting. So let's take a quick look behind the scenes. Could you give us some kind of do's and don'ts when it comes down to developing orthopedic devices? I think probably where we most see issues is when you're doing testing, you get your results, so you don't explain why those results justify that your device you know, pass the test. You just say, well, we'll let FDA decide if it's good enough. No, 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 no. <laughs> you want to put the argument in front of FDA and they can tell you whether they like that argument or not, but don't, you know, make it harder for them. In fact, that's, that's probably a good general rule also. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a common quip, happy wife, happy life, 
right? It works with FDA as well. Happy reviewer, happy company. Make the submission process as easy for the reviewer as possible. And definitely that's one of the things that we'll do when we're working and putting together a submission or working with a company. You know, we know what it's like to review these submissions from the other side. So therefore, what makes my life easiest? Well, if I could just cut and paste what you wrote into my review document, that made my life easier. You have good tables. I can just copy those tables. That makes my life easier. And that's, you know, the kind of content we're trying to put into the submissions to make the review process as painless for the reviewer, which makes it as painless for the company. Yeah. And FDA always wants to see the protocols, right? A lot of times protocols are not provided. And I think FDA wants to see the roadmap of what, where you started, what your kind of hypothesis was, what your kind of methods were. And so protocol should always be included with the test reports because FDA want to, wants to kind of track back to how you got those results. Have you seen any super interest or stuff where it was like, whoa, uh, I just have to take a step back to kind of process what I just saw <laughs> or where people pitched to me as an idea what they want to bring to the market? I don't know if it's confidential to reveal. That's my problem. Most of the innovation that's occurring in ortho these days is occurring in the smaller joints. But I was working with one company that just flipped a joint around, a major joint around, and it looks great, you know, which is, which is that really, that really made me scratch my head because <laughs> it, it just put, literally put something on its head and it seems to work much better, which was very interesting. Uh, it took me a little bit to get used to it. It's taking FDA a little bit to get used to it. Um, but that, that's the way this goes, right? You have to. You have to get FDA used to the to, to novel ideas. So they more likely took Darwinism and <laughs> improved it in a quick second instead of about thousands yeah. of years. Yeah. Mine was definitely while I was at the agency because our, our group was a restorative group. So we definitely got more of the interesting products that traditionally would not have either been devices or could have been combination products. So I've definitely seen my fair share of interesting products. I'm always yeah. trying to get something out of my guests, <laughs> but I know we are really in a tricky business to talk about really it details. Is just so the yeah, if it's yeah, not on the market. All yeah, good, all good. Tricky. There is one that's on the market now. I remember seeing it at FDA. It it, it took a long time to get through uh, FDA. It's a device for fracture fixation. So when you break a bone, there's two ways. The idea is you hold the bone in place to allow it to heal. And you can either do that on the outside of the bone with a plate or on the inside of the bone with a rod. And which one you choose largely depends on the anatomy of the bone. But there are bones that are curved and it's very hard, like the clavicle, for example. And it's, it's very hard to get the right geometry there. And, you know, not all people are the same. You can make your device in various sizes, but people, you know, people not one size fits all. So one company came up with a brilliant idea, Luminos came up with an idea that why use a metal rod? Let's put a balloon in there, inflate it with a liquid polymer, and then polymerize the polymer into a solid using light. This is a concept that's used in dental devices all the time. And then you can have it form-fitting to the patient and then also, I mean, there are a couple of other device, uh, advantages of this technology. Eventually, this device became one of the first de novos in orthopedics. But uh, it was a long road because uh, I remember the first time I heard that as a reviewer, I'm like, that's crazy. <laughs> uh, although they're the main, yeah, yeah, that was, but, but, you know, the more you heard it, the more you're like, oh, that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, so that's probably the craziest, craziest device I saw. 
slowly bringing our conversation to a close. Um, of course, I'm always looking for like my top three. And this time, since I have the expert of the orthopedics industry now right in front of me or in front of the microphone, I'm, I love to take a look in the glass bowl. And you already said spine, mm-hmm. for example, spine injuries are a big thing. Um, from the top of your head, top three things that potentially are coming out and um, are going to be super heavily discussed and developed over the next years? Yeah, I think what, what the industry is saying through trade shows, through development, through what we're seeing is really a drive in robotics and navigation. I think every major orthopedic player is coming up with some sort of robot or navigation. I think combination products have been around for years and I think that's not going to stop, right? I think there there is a need um, infections while the incidents are low, when a patient does get an infection, it can be very devastating. So I think there's a, still a drive to get some sort of infection product out there for a number of reasons. And I think along with combo products is the additive manufacturing, right? Everyone's really shifting from traditional manufacturing to additive manufacturing. And with that, you can probably bundle in surface treatment. A lot of companies are looking at different types of surface treatments to really enhance their product. And that's kind of the, the kind of the three hot button areas I've seen over the years. Moshe, I don't know if you have anything to add to that or see anything else. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, on the, on the combination products, I think that's actually a one area where we're seeing positive movement from FDA. Uh, it's been really hard uh, to add antimicrobials. They've been very hesitant, believing that the risk that, that you generate, you know, superbugs outweighs the risk of, you know, the low chance of infection. Um, I think there's more positive movement there. I think these products are going to become regulatorily viable. Um, but in terms of the big three, I'm basically, I'm going to say very similar to what Gemin did, but kind of from a different view. I think personalized, this is, this is true for all uh, medical devices, but even for orthopedics, personalized healthcare, meaning a device that is patient-matched for you or a surgical treatment that is patient-matched for you or patient-matched cutting guides, all of these things where it's not a one-size-fits-all, as has always been the case, particularly in orthopedics, you know, two metal, you know, two size increments, whatever it is. Now it's no, this is this is designed just for you. It's tailored just for you based off of your specific, in this case, anatomy, usually. Another thing that I think a trend that's starting and is just going to increase, you're seeing it already with wearables, right? There's a lot of wearable sensors. You're going to start to see sensorized implants, where it is monitoring how the implant is doing, how much you're loading it, and hopefully will give us an even earlier look uh, as to when something is starting to go wrong. You know, that is just at the start, but I think that is a trend that is going to, that's kind of the next big, big area. And then, as I mentioned before, I think small joint innovation, the big players kind of have the big joints locked up pretty good. It's very hard for a small player to, to innovate and large players have, have problems innovating for other reasons. So I think most of the innovation you're going to see is in smaller joints, elbows, wrists, fingers, ankles, things like that. There, I have to jump in really quick again. With all this introduction of sensors and measurement in orthopedics, would that more likely revolutionize the clinical studies as well? Because there's a new set of data available then? Yeah, it may it may very well get to that. I mean, everything has its risk, right? If you're adding an active device to an implant, 
that is much riskier than adding an electrically active device to a sense to, to a wearable. You simply, you know, from an MR perspective, you you run different risks or addition not different. You run additional risks when you're putting an active implant into someone, and then you're going to put that into an MR scanner. You know, you're going to fry the patient, you're going to fry the implant. Uh, you know, you can't just pull it out when you want to, like a like a wearable sensor. So there is going to be some cost benefit analysis, and right now a lot of this is exploratory. We just we don't know, you know, the first stage is to gather big data and then to mine it. Uh, you need the sensors to gather the big data. We're doing that in wearable sensors right now. All these, you know, huge amounts of data are being generated. Um, and you're going to start to see, you know, specific innovation based off of that in the next five years. But I think that's going to continue to implants. Uh, but exactly where the benefit risk is going to come is going to be a little bit harder, right? Because you have to convince FDA that it makes sense to put a sensor into an implant when you don't really know the value of the data you're going to get out of it. So that's that's a little bit of a harder road to hoe. So, but I do think it's going to go that way. I needed to ask the question, not that anyone is going to complain to me that I didn't ask. Now, seconds before the end, I always give the stage to the guests. So would you like to give the listeners anything along the way? The, the things that we've been seeing with uh, OHD6 really is just that they're trying to work really hard of getting policy out there, right? We, we've seen step breakthrough. We've seen them kind of grant, grant those. And I think what we see a lot now with coming out of that orthopedics group is that they're doing a lot of webinars, right? They've committed to doing an annual antimicrobial webinar that a lot of people listen to. And we've heard feedback from clients. The same goes for a bunch of other areas, right? So they're definitely taking active initiative to, to help kind of innovation and drive products to patients. And I would say interact with the FDA, uh, particularly, you know, FDA is looking to be more interactive. Certainly the younger reviewers like that. I think there's there's two big advantages to it. One, the more you hear a crazy idea, the less crazy it is. Um, so it, it, it really does, I think, ultimately smooth the path. The more the more comfortable FDA gets with the concept, the less the regulatory burden will be to, to demonstrate its safety and efficacy. And also, if you're going to get bad news from the agency, it's better to know that early in the process when you have runway to accommodate it or to say, okay, forget this, this is not going to be worth it, than finding it quite late in the game. So it's important, to, for, certainly for novel products, not, not for me too's, but, but for novel devices, interact fairly early with FDA. You have to have a solid idea of what your device is and what it's going to do and how you're going to test it. You can't go in too early, and it's always good to have some proof of concept, but it's better to get bad news early where you can accommodate it, and repetition does breed comfort. That was super interesting. I'm I'm really, really happy that I asked you guys to jump on the podcast with me. That was super informative. And I learned a lot and I think our listeners as well. Um, Michael, Jemin, thank you very much for joining me. No, thanks for having us. My pleasure. So that's it for today. If you have further questions for Michael and Jemin, I'm going to link their bios in the show notes. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please do so, so you're not missing out on any coming content. We're potentially going to be back in around two weeks with a new episode. So thank you for joining today and talking The Cure.